Welcome to another Thursday Mad Kudu Marketing Ops Confessions. Super excited to be joined today with Maria Velasquez, who is heading up demand gen at Farut. Um, but was previously, when we actually booked you on the show, you were the head of marketing at Unibuddy. So um, we'll definitely chat a bit about that, that change in um, companies. But super passionate about the startup marketing space, about marketing operations, having gotten your, your background there. So I, I'm super pumped to be chatting with her today. So a, a big welcome to you, Maria. Thanks so much for joining us, um, both live and, and to have this recorded for, um, for folks that can't make it live today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Awesome. And for those of you that are with us, um, we've got a chat and, and a questions tab. Feel free to use those and, and provide any feedback, give any questions that we can ask Maria live. Um, but without further ado, I wanna I wanna just jump in and and hear about the new job at Farut. What you know, the transition between jobs um, is is always a difficult decision. H how did you make the decision to make that change? Um, it was a, a natural decision, and, and okay. there is a reason <laughs> why. Um, I uh, I spent a few years in cybersecurity, doing cybersecurity marketing, and really just fell in love with the market and the space. Um, I uh, built and, and co-founded a community of cybersecurity marketers a few years ago, and so I was super embedded uh, in that community. And even though I did a short stunt into edtech uh, at Unibuddy, um, I always knew that my time in cyber was uh, coming back. I just didn't know uh -huh. when and with whom exactly. Um, and so through the Cybersecurity Marketing Society, I met Chris Calling, uh, who is the VP of Marketing at Farouk. And we talked and he basically explained his vision for the marketing team at Farouk, uh, what the company is trying to do, talked about the founders, uh, and really just checked all the boxes for me as um, as kind of like the next natural home uh, and the best way to come back into cyber uh, with uh, with Farut. I love it. Um, <laughs> what is your, you know, I'm sure a lot of people on the on the call or listening to this might be thinking about making a change or, um, you know, considering making a change in the, the near or, you know, even in the future. How do you think about evaluating new companies? Like what, what boxes needed to be checked for you to, to join Farood? Yeah, I, I first look at the product. Uh, I want to make sure that I'm not in this impossible uphill battle to market a, a product that doesn't have a market fit or a need. Uh, so that's super important. Um, second, I look at the founders um, and, uh, of course, talk to them and, and get to know them and really understand uh, how do they see marketing fit in, in, in the growth of their company. And most importantly, I want to feel that they believe in marketing's potential uh, in actually rev uh, revenue generating, um, not just building websites and posting social media posts. And so once I feel that, that there is uh, trust and belief in marketing, I know that I'll have the right kind of support. I'll have the right kind of positive environment to, to be successful in my job. And then, uh, you know, lastly, bonus points, if there is already a pretty cool kick-ass marketing leader within the company that is going to be my partner, my mentor, um, and yeah, uh, someone that'll support me in my growth and then, of course, support my success uh, in the role. And, and I found that. Shout out, Chris. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, but to double click on the, the trust in the existing leadership team and the founders in, in marketing, and as you put it so well, as a revenue generating function, not just, you know, logos and, and, you know, events and, and things like that. What are some like key phrases or like, what do you listen for? What should other people be listening for or identify as a red flag or a, like, whoa, they really get it. That's, that's a company that, that gets marketing. Yeah, I usually ask, you know, what is what is the roadmap for building the marketing team? Uh, and so if I see if the answer is, well, it's just going to be you for now for the next 12 months and then in 12 months we'll hire someone else, then that to me is a red flag. I need to know that there's going to be resources put behind uh, my success in the role and, of course, my success in making sure that um, the marketing unit is, you know, contributing to revenue and, and making sure that it's being built uh, with some strong foundations. And so if you see that they are 
hiring very early on equally as they're hiring for sales, right? Usually you'll see mm -hmm. the, the company doubling down on a sales team to 50 people while the marketing team is just still four people trying to figure out how do we actually support this. Um, and so if there is kind of this equal uh, resource allocation on both sales and marketing, then it's actually a good sign. Yeah. Yeah. So like, are, are they investing or plan to invest there? Are they, you know, expecting they can bring on somebody and they're going to solve all the things um, in, you know, with two hands. Yes. What um, you mentioned when we were chatting, you're hiring on your team already. So so congrats for for growing the team so quickly. And and clearly you did find a, a good fit in, in a company that is looking to invest. And and you're hiring specifically for marketing ops. So near and dear to this community's heart. Um, you know, a lot of folks in in the community and we see in in LinkedIn posts and and you know MoPros, you know, Wizard of Ops, all the different channels, like people looking for jobs, people hiring. There's there's such a um, such an interesting time for for marketing ops professionals. Um, I, I want to flip to the other side now. Like you've been hired, you've been recruited, you've you've you know you've evaluated the company as as a head of demand gen. How how should MOPS do that? Um, how are you thinking about it as a hiring manager um, when when hiring for that role? Uh, well, when looking for the right kind of skill set, it's uh, it's a little bit easier for marketing ops because it's pretty straightforward. Few years within a marketing ops role um, and a few certifications on certain platforms, marketing automations and CRMs and that sort of thing. That's usually a good indicator that not only this person has a little bit of experience that they can get started, but also they have the passion for it because they're learning and they're trying to you know expand on that. Um, and so, yeah, it is definitely an interesting time for MOPS professionals. It's actually an exciting time. It's their moment to shine because a lot of companies are realizing how important they are and yeah. they're, you know, they, they, they're good and they know it. Um, yeah. but, um, yeah, I, it's, it's really important to prioritize that role. And, and I, I know that you, you asked whether, um, it would be one of the first few critical hires, and I would 100% agree with that, if not the first hire, um, as you start to build your demand gen uh, function. It is sadly overlooked in many instances, and years down the road, um, it's, it, it just creates a lot of headaches for a lot of people within the company, not just marketing. Um, you realize when you don't have good data uh, and good processes and good workflows on the marketing side, it affects sales, it affects understanding revenue, it affects finance, and then of mm -hmm. course it affects those pretty slides that you show the board uh, every month on how well your company's doing. And so it, it's definitely a ripple effect and I would always prioritize it. Love it, yeah. So is this your first hire then? You're, you're prioritizing marketing ops on the demand gen team to be? Yeah, I mean, credits to, to my VP uh, here at Farut. He already had that role live even before I joined the company. And that was one of the telltale signs for me that, wow, this guy really knows what's important here to build that solid team. And he's prioritizing marketing ops. And so, um, yeah, we're interviewing. We have a few people we're talking to. And uh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I think you you nailed two points here that that we're seeing a lot. And actually, as a marketing leader, um, I know you and I align on marketing ops being an initial hire. But the first step is: does the company value and understand and trust marketing as as a department and, and a function, what it can provide to the organization? And then, secondarily, does that marketing leader value the need or or the um, you know people, process, and technology that is marketing operations role? Um, as high as it needs to be. And, and we're seeing a shift now, right? Like you said, in that being a, a higher priority or, or a, a potential reason why some companies are not, um, are not scaling as efficiently or effectively as they'd like to. Um, but, but I like what you said about there's, you know, you can, there's a few data points about a person to understand whether, you know, they might be a fit for what you're looking for, right? Um, do you think that there's different types of marketing ops professionals though? Like, are, are there some that are more, um, you know, strictly like admins, like they, they know HubSpot or Marketo inside and out and, and maybe others that are more on the workflow or, or data strategy side and how data flows between systems. Um, you know, how do you, curious your thoughts on that to start? 
Yeah, I think I think originally they were very much admin type uh, kind of service function of the marketing team. But now there is a movement uh, within the mobs world that no, we're not just a ticket uh, uh, sort of service unit. We can very much be part of the strategy talks. And if we are part of strategy talks early enough, we can avoid so many uh, delays in, in campaign building or even uh, in, in strategy building and uh, execution later down the road um, because essentially those are the people you want at the table to tell the dreamers on the marketing team that, by the way, this is not possible on the current tech stack that we have. Or I love your idea, but we can't do that with what we have today. If you want to do that, we'll have to get something else or there is you know, no workaround or no way, no way to actually make that happen. So um, I believe that they should be uh, very much part of the the strategic uh, team within the marketing uh, function, and and yeah, that's kind of like what makes them special, right? We can also we can do strategy and we can also execute on it, and not everyone can can do that. Right, right, yeah, and I think that that's key is as people get into the the function and um, you know put a plant a flag in the business that they're in and say, here's, here's what I'm capable of doing. And here's what this function should be. We're doing, you know, X percent of it. And here's my plan to, to cover the rest of, of the, the capabilities. Right. Um, so you have a background in MOPS though. So, so why not, you know, why not take that on yourself in addition to your other, other duties, right? Like, a lot of marketers these days are, are able to administer a lot of the tools and technologies and you know what workflows to set up. You know, you know, we'll talk a bit today about SLAs and, and working with sales and the right reports. Um, you know, why do you need a separate person when you can, you know, you can roll up your sleeves and do all of that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a two full time jobs into one, honestly. So you really do need somebody on the tech stack every day, all day, not only just monitoring, but maintaining, cleaning up, troubleshooting, and really analyzing the data to bring you back some insights so that you can improve your marketing. Uh, looking at, I don't know, email open and click rates and figuring out, by the way, the subject line got a lot more opens, let's do more of that in future email campaigns, or even landing pages and conversion rates. Um, conversions between uh, life cycle stages and seeing what which MQLs are actually converting to the later stages. Let's look at those and let's figure out how they got here in their journey. And those are the, you know, the channels where they came from is where you should put your marketing dollars. Things like that is uh, what I, I feel is the most important part of marketing ops, not, not setting up email templates, not creating forms or track links and, and the like. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that snippet right there is, um, you know, if anybody's not able to or doesn't have the the marketing leader like you have that is fully understanding and bought into bringing in ops early, what you just listed off are, are great reasons that that people listening to this could leverage to tell their, you know, internal teams and leadership of of what could be done and, and the fact that it is a full time job, um, because unfortunately, not every marketing leader does, you know, understand that that is is a need um nope. but we'll work to change that that that's part of what this this yes. community is about yes <laughs> let's make that movement bigger let's go yes. Yes. <laughs> you mentioned certifications what so what certifications should mobs be getting what do you prioritize um when you're hiring and um i challenge you and like it, does that mean if somebody doesn't have a certification they're not a good fit not really, actually. I, I would say, you know, the combination of both is really nice to have. Um, but I mean, I look at certifications as kind of like a college degree. It teaches you the theory, but not necessarily all the practice. And so, yeah, yeah you can have all the uh, HubSpot inbound certifications and, 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 and stuff like that. But if you haven't actually put them to practice, if you haven't made mistakes um, on those tools, then you really haven't had kind of like that really hands-on learning experience but there are i should say that there are other certifications that make you do kind of exercises on a, in a sandbox um and you actually get to do things and build things versus just watching videos and scrolling through slides and doing kind of like a quiz at the end so i like i like both i think they're both very valuable in, in building a good skill set okay okay um have you ever like not hired full time and, and maybe 
looked to a freelancer or contractor or an agency to support marketing ops. If, you know, thinking about like the, the market shift in, in the hiring market, um, is that something people should be considering? Yeah, I have actually in multiple roles. Uh, and uh, in, in one of them, I wasn't really the lead uh, on the particular project where we were um, kind of just revamping and overhauling HubSpot from the ground up. Um, and it was more of a cleanup kind of exercise than, than setting up and building things from scratch. Um, and then in another uh, role, it was uh, for Pardot. And uh, Pardot tends to be a lot more difficult of a marketing automation tool to make it do what you would want it to do. And so it, it is limiting in ways um, if you compare it to HubSpot, that is. And, and I know maybe a lot of Pardot champions here are going to disagree with me. And uh, But I've had my uh, fair share of uh, both Pardot and HubSpot. And, um, and so um, if I were to choose, I would definitely go with HubSpot, especially if you're an early stage startup, a lean team, and don't really have a lot of kind of expertise in-house, it is fairly easy to kick off. Um, but of course, both tools do need a lot of strategy and um, in kind of building the operations on paper before you build it on a tool. Otherwise, it just gets it, it gets really yeah. messy. But yeah, I've I've hired agencies. And, and I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of value in that, uh, of course, because you get a whole team uh, of different uh, types of skill sets. If you need very technical or if you need more of the implementation. If you're syncing to Salesforce, that can be pretty arduous. Um, but it has a lot of challenges too, because um, you know sometimes you look to the agency for direction, but then the agency is also looking for direction from you on how you would want to set up your company operations. Um, yeah. And if you don't have a good kind of agency lead and you know agency resource on on both sides, um, it can just get lost in a lot of um, misunderstandings and loss in translations for lack of yeah time. yeah, um, yeah I, i've seen a lot of success and, and i've really enjoyed supplementing an in-house mops person with an agency and and to your point needing to be very explicit or very clear on expectations and when you want to look to them for advisory versus execution and leveraging them from an advisory or strategy point has been very helpful to like think through things because as you mentioned, they are a they're a team, right? You, you've, you've got more heads, especially if you're a small marketing yeah. or maybe you have one marketing ops person, right? Um, you know, two to six heads is better than one. Plus they're working with dozens of other clients. So they've seen more than, than you have and what's worked and what hasn't. So if you can tap into that as a resource, and um, hopefully not make some mistakes that others have or, or get ideas for how you could be, you know, managing your lead flow or, you know, enabling your sales team, for example. And I think there's a lot of value there. Um, but we've had a few agencies and, and contractors on, on this show. And, and so um, it's, it's exciting to hear both sides. And I think that there's, um, there's certainly been a shift in, in my eyes as to how people are leveraging them as less order takers and, hey, I just need somebody to um, execute this campaign, build the email, click send, build the lists, you know, make sure my life cycle stages are set up correctly, run reports at the end of the quarter, and instead help build a, a, a roadmap for marketing operations and and actioning the the data and, and technologies that your, your team is acquiring. Um, yeah. We all yeah. know that tools need to be administered no matter what. Um, they don't, it doesn't just exist and, and work. Um, Absolutely. Work Absolutely. And like you said, it's a roadmap. And I think it's really important to set expectations yeah. uh, that there is, there are phases in, you know, setting up your marketing tech stack. And so you should, you know, crawl before you run. And so if you set up something to, uh, complex too early on, you don't, first of all, you don't really need it. And then it's, it's too hard to explain to your leadership. And then if something breaks, you can't fix it because you don't know what's been set up and how it's been set up because it's too complex. So there are definitely phases in, in terms of, you know, the maturity of the company and growth with the growth of its tech, tech stack and its, um, um, and how, how, you know, how, uh, refined you want it to be. 
Um, well, we mentioned SLAs and sales and marketing alignment and, you know, demand gen and marketing ops are, are right in the, the middle of all of that. Um, before we jump into, I know you have a template that you want to share with people, which I think is fantastic. And, and we'll include a link to this in, in the show notes as well. But um, how do you think about service level agreements between sales and marketing in your role? Yeah, I think I think they're a great first step in at least defining and documenting our thoughts, <laughs> whatever's going on in our brains, uh, into paper. Um, but they can kind of be the the life or death of a sales marketing alignment, and so you have to be very careful with um, you know how simple or complex you want to go. Uh, of course, that that's depending on the size of your teams. And depending on the existing relationship between sales and marketing. And so if you're doing it very early on, it would be really cool to do it together. And right. And so at least the sales leadership feels like they're part of it and they can be a champion and they can champion it across to their team because that's really important. And that is that building block of actually enforcing it, because if the sales leader doesn't believe in it, he's not going to care that his team isn't changing the lead status of a rejected MQL after it's been unqualified, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, and it can be in any written format, as long as it's, it's in clear writing, uh, they leadership and stakeholders know where it is and where to find mm-hmm. it. Um, and it can actually be a great tool for training, for, uh, onboarding new sales team members and even marketing team members. So essentially the way I like to think of it is just a documentation of the entire journey from what marketing does to generate leads, what it does to nurture it, how it qualifies it. The sales and mar- uh, the marketing and sales handover, which is that very very critical point, mm-hmm. and then what does marketing expect the sales team to do with MQLs that they've been handed? Um, and so mm-hmm. it's really nice to have that process documented because then you can start to see, you know, where are gaps in in our process that we need to address and improve, and then it it also gives the chance for uh, an open loop of feedback from the sales team on what marketing is doing and if things aren't working. So that's that's to me what an SLA is. I know a lot of people would have other types and versions of it, uh, but my advice is just keep it simple, uh, keep the process simple too. Um, that way yeah. it isn't really hard to, um, to adopt. Um, and especially if you have a complex set, set of tech stack and um, too many steps, it can be really hard to enforce. Yeah, so what you're saying, in theory, SLAs, fantastic. Companies often break down when it comes to buy-in and enforcement. That's that's exactly what it is. And I think, and I've made this mistake before where, you know, uh, I thought an SLA document is the answer to everything. Um, but yeah. it needs a good relationship with the sales team, but then it also needs to be simple. Uh, and you need buy-in from beyond just the sales leadership. Uh, this way, you know, uh, enforcing it can come from top down and, and it's and it's a respected piece of document um, that, you know, the company would have to, to follow and enforce. Can you walk us through the process you would go or maybe that you're going through in Farouk and um, share what you put together? So I actually have not put that together for yet. It is on my roadmap of uh, the 30, 60, 90 day uh, things to do. Um, But essentially it is defining uh, marketing channels, marketing lifecycle stages, um, how lead scoring works and, you know, what gets a two point versus what gets a 10 point, um, what should the sales team follow up with uh, or not follow up with in terms of qualification? How do we build our ICP and personas and make sure that we qualify not only from an engagement perspective, but from a demographic perspective to make sure it's a good fit? Um, it has basically everything. Uh, yep. And so it's, Where do you go to find the answers to those questions? Like, what what meetings are you having to prep for putting that together? What, where are you looking in the existing tech stack and and data to answer those questions? Yeah, I mean, one example would be, uh, gosh, and it's going to depend, of course, on the market, on the sales cycle, and so the sales cycle and how long it is will dictate kind of what your lead scoring matrix looks like, uh, mm-hmm. because you want to understand. You kind of 
try as much as possible to put together what it would be a customer journey, right? It's impossible to, to know exactly how customers are going to come buy your product because they can take any crazy journey, uh, right? In dark socials and all these places yes. before they can actually come in and ask for a demo. So there isn't a linear one, but I think it, it helps from a marketing perspective and at least setting up the tech stack uh, to just have one standard one. And that tells you kind of, okay, well, this is how much usually a lead will spend at this stage before they qualify to become an MQL. And what is that score threshold, right? Is it 30 or is it 50? Um, and then what, what happens after that? Uh, but then also, you know, talking to the customer success team to understand uh, the customers and understand how they found us. So at least you have some mm -hmm. anecdotes. And then talking regularly to the sales team and maybe even, you know, uh, listening to demo recordings uh, just to see what they're hearing on, on the demo call. And even if, sometimes, of course, you'll have feedback on messaging or feedback on, you know, the product uh, aside from just kind of like that journey of how they found you. Yes. Yeah. Um, would you like to share what the output looks like? I know you have a template. I do have a template. It is a template that we created for the Cybersecurity Marketing Society. So, and, and feel free when you get the link to it, feel free to make a copy and use it as you wish. This is amazing. And and like I mentioned, we'll, we'll definitely include a link to the template she's sharing. And, and I do wanna talk more about that, the community started. Um, but while you're pulling this up. Yeah. I think I'm doing this right. Let's see. I've actually never done this on um, Livestorm. Oh, okay. So uh, let's see. Do I just share my screen or do I actually? Here it is. Perfect. Yes. There we go. Okay. Awesome. There we go. Can you see that? Yes. Great. All right. So this is the output of, of all the work that you just mentioned and, and what is signed off on by sales and marketing leadership that says, you know, here's the flow of lead soup to nuts, the expectations set on both marketing and sales. Yeah. Yeah. And it and it is kind of I, I like to uh, position it as an actual agreement. And I've actually even had. Uh, people laugh at the idea of, you know, the CMO and the sales leader actually signing this. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. But yeah, so it just goes over kind of, you know, the details, you know, the stakeholders on high level. Here are the marketing responsibilities and um, sales. Uh, this should be reviewed regularly, right? Like I said, it's a, it's a living document. And so you try it out for six months and then come back and say, well, this was completely wrong. We have to redo it. Or some of these some parts of this uh, process uh, it is definitely not realistic and, and, you know, change it as you see fit. So the biannual and, and people can review this as they see fit, depending on their company and their sales, sales cycles, deal sizes and all of that. Yeah. So, I, I feel like quarterly for a lot of businesses, I think makes sense, right? Like as, as you do your quarterly look back yeah. where, where are leads coming. And again, to your point, it depends if it takes a year for a lead to turn into, you know, a customer, you might want to think about that differently. But if you have a more transactional business where things are going through the funnel pretty quickly, um, you might want to look more frequently. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I see this a lot where these life cycle stage definitions are um, confused by a lot of, you know, sales leaders or even leadership mm -hmm. uh, and, and marketing. So it's really nice to just define them for everyone and say, this is how we're defining a lead. This is how we're defining an MQL. In uh, my previous uh, role, we also considered an MQL someone who attended a webinar uh, or attended one of our events, and we saw that as buying intent, so we deemed them as an MQL. Um, but others might think that it's kind of a pre-MQL, not quite ready to talk to sales, and that's fine too. Uh, yeah. So it's going to take some testing to figure out what truly is an MQL, and that's why it's really good to keep that feedback loop coming from the sales team or, you know, hijack their demo calls or go into their recordings and, and yeah. listen as much as possible. Yeah. Like for us, for example, we have two different, we'll call them flavors of MQLs. So, um, you know, and we, we certainly drink our own 
Kool-Aid and, and use my kudu, but um, we, we have a hand raiser, MQL, so the demo requests, hard yes. concepts, and then, and then what we refer to as a natural MQL, that would be based on a, a score threshold that, that again, we use our, our predictive model to, yeah. to determine. So two different flavors, but still, yeah, like you can bifurcate the, the journey there a bit. Exactly, exactly. And then here, I mean, the, the score thresholds, again, is really up to you. But I usually like to keep it on a scale of zero to 100. And then 100 is kind of when they become a customer. And that's when you can actually do a, a customer lead score if you want to start doing mm. customer health and customer marketing and that sort of thing. But at least for the previous stages, I like to keep it this way. It's it's straightforward. Um, and of course, they can skip stages, right? A subscriber to just the blog can automatically become an MQL and, and ask for a demo. Or they can meet the sales team at an event and just become an SQL automatically without actually doing any of these things. So mm -hmm. it's it's nice to have as a blueprint. But of course, it's, it's never going to be uh, real life all the time. Um, you know, the lead flow, just adding a little bit of a visual. And of course, there's so many more things that you can add here to, uh, to create that big picture of, you know, what happens, you know, when you reject and, and send back and, and that sort of thing. Um, and that's where lead statuses come in. And I think those are super important, mm -hmm. a really nice layer to complement the lifecycle stages, just mm -hmm. to understand, you know, the lead quality and, and, and what's happening once you give your precious MQLs to the sales team, looking at the lead statuses is really, really good. Um, or, or even with that, if they're not coming inbound, right? If, if you have a team that's doing outbound, the statuses become helpful to know who's, who is sales engaging with. So maybe they're not qualified to flip to an MQL because they're going down a different journey or a different funnel. Exactly. Exactly. And this I like to I like to include just a sample of what it would look like based on the lead score. Uh, of course, it, it's it's so much more right. I like to include every page on the website and give it a point. I like to include every possible blog and, and give it a point. It's really important to capture all, all of that engagement. But yeah, this is just kind of like a sample of what the mm -hmm. journey would look like. They would Visit the page five times and the blog and then come in and look at the solutions page and then the company, uh, we know their company name and their phone number. So uh, just a, a sample. And I think a, and a lot of people kind of, you know, can argue that this doesn't really work anymore and that a lot of the buying and consideration happens before they come to your website. Of course, they're part of micro communities. They ask their peers. Of course, mm -hmm. they find your article on external places and they don't actually come to your website until they're ready to buy and they just come to the demo form and ask for a demo. And that's fine. That's that's great. But at least having this as kind of the safety net, just in case that doesn't happen, you have that data on your marketing uh, platform and you can you know draw some conclusions from it. Mm-hmm. All right. Campaign. This is one that, that I always scratch my head on the, the grandparent, parent, child campaign hierarchy and the pros and cons to that and, and Salesforce. And should you make campaigns based on the year, based on, you know, all time. And then you have child campaigns that are based on timing, or can you just use the engage date from the member status changing <laughs> in the campaign? So What's your philosophy here? Because what you're you're recommending is is having it by you know an annual campaign, and then the child campaigns would be for events or content or programs that happen within that year. Yeah, and I've actually tried something slightly different uh, just previously at anybody on on Salesforce and setting up the campaign hierarchy, which I can add here for people before they grab this document. Is uh, we created one uh, uh, you know grandparent campaign that is yeah. you know uh, let's say FY twenty two marketing, and we looked at what we do in marketing in terms of like types of activities, right? And we said, well, we do uh, brand, which encompasses, uh, you know, a bunch of things. And then we also do lead gen. And we do a lot of events. And mm -hmm. so we said, okay, we're going to do, we're going to set up a grandparent campaign, that's FY22 marketing, and then a parent, a set of three parent campaigns, one is FY22 lead gen, FY22 brand, and FY22 events. Okay. Under that, is where all the child campaigns go for activities in lead gen for the different events and webinars and for the different brand um, activities. Well, what would you, what's an example that you'd put under lead gen versus brand? So lead gen would be uh, an ebook, uh, white paper, um, 
we we used to put uh, webinars under events just because they were kind of part of the same sure, team. Yeah. But I would mm -hmm. also argue that webinars are also lead gen and they can go mm -hmm. under lead gen. But what was most important for me is, uh, and we had this actually set up with our Salesforce consultant is we made sure we added costs on uh, every level, right? And uh, this way, when we turned on campaign uh, influence and understanding what opportunities were created from where, that would also flow back up to any level you want. So you could go into the parent level of events and see, okay, events cost us this much, all from the child costs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we brought in this many opportunities, all from the child opportunities as well. So everything kind of rolled up. Uh, and you can see aggregate and you can also dig into specific child campaign to see, well, this particular webinar uh, influenced this many opportunities. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, you know, can, campaign attribution in Salesforce is a really interesting topic. I have not actually nailed that uh, problem. We, we tried this, um, but, you know, reporting on it is always really tricky. And so, um, yeah. It's, I don't know that anybody's nailed it. At least exactly. that I yeah yeah and just because the journey is so many touch points it's really silly to start to look at the like the details of like oh well they did this webinar and then they downloaded this ebook let's give this 10 percent of attribution versus 20 it's just a waste of time um especially if the opportunity isn't closed one and, and actually doesn't yeah. you know result in anything so yeah attribution is such a controversial topic too and I, we were talking about this offline and and even the deciding like is something in an in inbound or is it outbound is it did the sales get credit or not like the whole who gets credit like does it does it even matter like if if we're doing our jobs correctly shouldn't it be difficult to to identify whether it was you know, truly an inbound lead or truly a sales generated lead. Um, yeah. yeah, I I have thoughts on it, but like, you know, I'm, I'm also, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm I definitely, yeah. Uh, yep. I have, I have thoughts on it too, maybe controversial ones, but yeah, I think, it, I think it's really silly to, um, spend too much time on attribution. Um, I think that we're sold on the idea of multi-touch attribution and just seeing that entire journey uh, by the vendors that created those tools and those multi-touch attribution reporting tools and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, if you align with the sales team on one winning KPI, which is revenue, uh, they don't really care how it got there. They care that they got the opportunity and it was a good one and they closed it. Um, and so... Yes, for for the company growth and um, you know forecasting and understanding where to invest marketing efforts and dollars in the future, it's important to know if okay, this channel yeah. works better than this channel or this campaign actually did really well for us versus this one. But uh, when it comes to doing that whole multi-touch attribution and all these intricate things, um, it's I think it's a silly waste of time. Yeah. And I think a lot of that probably comes, I mean, I'm, I'm very much um, in agreement with you on, on a lot of things you said. And I think both of us having a, a background in, in marketing at seed or, or series A stage companies that are, are quite early in there, um, you know, setting up the foundation of marketing. Maybe there's not even enough data that, that you know, some of the traditional attribution models would need. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of folks listening to this have have thoughts, and there's a lot of content out there about at, what attribution is and isn't. But I think it, you you hit the nail on the head with like we all need to work together, um, and it, attribution has a place in our planning, in my opinion, and, and understanding of of what can work and and maybe what doesn't. But it misses so many pieces and so many data points. Yeah. Um, so it's not something that I would bring to like a sales and marketing meeting or, or certainly not up to a board meeting. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And it's just, it's just such a complex kind of concept that um, I think it creates frustration from people who don't understand it and maybe don't care to understand it. Um, yeah, it has its importance, but um, you also need really, really, really good, clean data and a good data structure across your CRM. Uh, in order to actually do multi-touch attribution. And so if you don't have that and you have no idea where your deals are coming from and your leads are coming from and, and that sort of thing, it's going to be an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, maybe it's not even where the leads are coming from, right? Like we've, we've got examples and I love highlighting them for our team to see how this like 
doing sales prospecting and, and the work that we do in marketing, how it works together when things like there's, there's an account that, you know, we've got people um, on the, the marketing team that are engaging with the content that we generate from this marketing ops confessions program. Sales is, is doing outreach into, you know, maybe sales leadership or, or marketing leadership. And then, you know, somebody in demand gen comes inbound, you know, like all of those things, like how do you find a thread across all of those that in your database is going to show like what the, the primary source was? in my opinion, it doesn't matter. It, it's, it's, we know the accounts that we're trying to go after and we're all um, coordinated in our efforts in, in building content programs, tactics, and messaging that's going to resonate to the market segment you're prioritizing for that period of time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, reporting on attribution is maybe important for the marketing team to understand, you know, what channels are working and, and what tactics are working but not from a, like a sales or marketing attribution to revenue. Um, because in the age of Zoom Info, in the age of ABM, and uploading your target list into your CRM, it already exists there. So if, if, uh, you know, if an inbound lead comes in from a target account that already exists in CRM and the sales is already prospecting, okay, who gets the credit? It's right. ridiculous. It's, it's right. very silly. So, yeah, I, I guess you, you got to pick your battles. You got to pick <laughs> battles um, on, on what you want to give your yourself a headache with. All right, sm small tangent on on attribution here. I'll let you keep going through your doc too. Um, cool. Yeah, we were going to cover that later, so I guess that's already done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and maybe we're at the end of this one too. So, um, but yeah, maybe yeah. conventions very very helpful. Yeah, 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 no problem. And so yeah, this this SLA document also has. A great deal of information even from for the marketing team from a tactical perspective like get organized make sure you have a standard naming convention so you are not scrolling through millions of lists because they're all named differently or always searching for it this i think those are like small tiny things that make a big difference three years down the road uh that you don't you know usually think about but if you bring a marketing ops person early enough they will do this stuff for you from early yes. <laughs> Um, and yeah, and then just get leadership to sign. And then I think I always laugh at this because um, I used to think that it was actually a good idea until uh, I was laughed at. And so, but I keep it there just to laugh at it. I think it's meaningful. <laughs> I think it's meaningful. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so this is it. And and of course you add on to it as you wish, but I think, you know, um, just aligning on, on that handoff, I think is the most important part. And this is kind of where the lead statuses come in and the definitions and the flow come in. And once you have that and you have a good synergy with the sales team and, and you're golden, all you have to do now is get their feedback and come back and continue to iterate on this and, and change it and improve it. Love it. Thank you so much for sharing that and, and going through that. No problem. Um, I'll share the link with you. I'm excited for folks to have a template. I feel like that's something that... Um, you know, that, that alignment, it starts with agreement. And that's why I think that signature is actually well, well placed. Uh, <laughs> um, how do you make sure that you get like, you know, sales is bought in outside of just getting that signature? Like, let's say something changes or, or leadership changes. Um, how do you make sure that it doesn't um, become a forgotten tool? Um, I, I guess my, my tactic would be, hey, by the way, we have this in place. And uh, if we don't actually follow it, this is what can happen. <laughs> and so your demo requests are going to fall through the cracks. You're going to lose out on revenue. And if you put it in that context for a salesperson, then, you know, they pay attention and, um, and do something about it. Yes, love it. Um, we, I mentioned that we're both, um, another reason I was very excited for this, this conversation today is when Marie and I met, we realize that we have a lot of similarities in our background and, and, you know, I don't want to use the word obsession, but like just a serial kind of early stage startup marketing, um, joiner, other <laughs> term, um, either being the first or the only, or like, you know, having to figure things out. Um, one thing we had talked about was like, what that feels like compared to being at larger companies where you have maybe a 10 to 20 to 30 person marketing team or, you know, a company that has more than a hundred people in it. Um, you know, I, I don't recall how many are at Farouk Soft Security, but um, it's, it's less than 20, right? Yeah. We're very early stage. Small company, right? And now I'm assuming you're two in marketing, trying to get your third and, and growing, but um, you know, 
it gets lonely. Yeah, right? I mean, uh, no, not for me, uh, and especially not uh, at Farouk or not in, in cybersecurity. Because, uh, yes, tell um, us about that. Yeah, I, I jump into my, if I do get lonely, which I don't, uh, there's so much to do at, at my job now. Uh, and that is the most exciting part for me is, you know, building and figuring out how do we get creative? How do we stand out? How do we sound different? Um, and I love having that opportunity. Um, you know, having a leader actually that supports that is is amazing so i'm having a lot of fun in these first few weeks at fruit but if if i do get lonely and when i do get lonely i hop over to my slack community of 900 plus cybersecurity marketers uh and that's where i hang out a lot we share a lot of information we help each other out we share templates like this mm-hmm. and, and there's actually there's a lot of competitors within the same group and you would be surprised at how wonderful uh and they're helping each other and, and helping each other and, and not being afraid to share their, you know, secret sauce and I don't know, LinkedIn advertising or what they're going to do with the next big cybersecurity event and that sort of thing. We even see people coming together and partnering on networking parties at, at events. They partner on webinars and content. It's, it's really wonderful. Um, so yeah, no, no boring times for me. And I'm a mom of two, so there's definitely no, no downtime. (laughs) Yes. The, the community aspect is so important in, you know, early stage startups, right? Because you, you know, you can tap into your network. I like to call it like build your own board of directors of people that you can reach out to because you, you, you know, your, your peers at work may not have gone through the same things that you're going through. So finding people that have, and, and you were, if I'm correct in recalling, you were, you started that community prior to you know, when you were in cybersecurity before Unibuddy. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, uh, Yeah, Uh, myself uh, and two other friends, uh, Gianna and Aileen, hi guys. Uh, (laughs) We just, we were lonely cybersecurity marketers. And so we thought, hey, let's just start this and figure out what happens. And we started with like 10 people in the Slack group. We hustled on LinkedIn and DM'd everyone and said, we're starting this, come join us. It's free to join. And it, at one point, we didn't really need to do that hustle anymore. It just started growing organically and people inviting others. Uh, and we have all levels of expertise. We have CMOs all the way to, you know, uh, new marketers and new grads. And everybody gets to learn from each other. So it's, it's wonderful. Do you think that it's important that it is cybersecurity or industry specific? Or um, would that type of community work outside of or industry agnostic, I guess. No, I think it, it could work, uh, but I think it's it's working so well because it is particularly for cybersecurity marketers. It is a very niche uh-huh. uh, market. It's very special in its ways. Um, our audience is special, tough at times. They don't usually like us marketers. <laughs> but we're trying our best. And I think that's probably one of the hottest topics in, in the Slack group is, okay, how do we talk better to the, you know, the CISOs and understand their needs and not give them just marketing fluff? So yeah, I think it is doing so well because it is particularly for cybersecurity because we share you know, mutual events and mutual ICP and mutual basically yeah. everything, even though, of course, everybody kind of you know, solves a different aspect of cybersecurity, but, you know, all, all in all, it is the same industry. Yeah. A rising tide raises yeah. all ships, right? Yeah, exactly. So if someone, like, what is, what's advice you'd give someone um, considering joining, like, an early stage startup where there isn't a lot of people, maybe little to no other marketers? Um, I think if you have the startup bug, you're already convinced you want to be in startups. So that's kind of one battle already won. Uh, What's the startup bug? Uh, I think the startup bug is, uh, you know, joining a company so early on, making, uh, seeing your impact uh, in, in a really direct uh, way versus an, an immediate impact as well. And I think that I love that. Um, and just small, tight knit we call it family and I don't know how long startups call each other family until they're, they become just too big to be called a family, maybe they're a team. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's something about startups and people that are made for startups. Um, 
you know, that, that can be successful in them. But I would say, yeah, just like I mentioned earlier, I would just do my research about the product, um, the competition that's already in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would do my research about the founders, um, even if they're first time founders, that there's always, you know, brilliant minds trying to build uh, awesome products and, and good companies. Um, and just get advice. I, I actually find a lot of advice within the Slack community, uh, marketing society, um, from CMOs that I now consider friends that I can go to and just ask, you know, uh, I don't know, how much equity should I ask for? Or what, is, what are stock options? And what, what's a, a reasonable bonus? Things like that, that you, you wouldn't necessarily get the right kind of information if they weren't already in cyber, if they didn't understand the industry and, yeah. and have done it themselves before. So. Yeah. yeah. So especially if you're in a startup too, like finding that community, finding people to um, talk to and engage with that are outside of your, your company um, because it changes so quickly too, right? Like there's, there's always new techniques and, and especially in marketing and sales, like there's, it, it moves so fast. And there's so much data as well that, you know, we've got to be nimble and quick in, in our ability to drive meaningful, positive outcomes. So, you know, trying to stay abreast of all of the new technologies and new, you know, approaches is um, a full-time job. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I, I, we get that, we get that kind of feedback a lot from our members, you know, after being part of the group for a few months and, oh my God, thank you so much for putting this together. I would be lost without it um, before I had nobody. And now I have all of this advice and information that can help me. There's a lot of people finding their, you know, next career opportunity within the group. I found my next career opportunity within the group because uh, my VP curse was already a member of it. So it's just, it's crazy how things like this, uh, you know, have such a big impact in many ways in people's lives. And um, so it's, it's wonderful. It's the, it's the side hustle, the five to nine, the weekends. It's a lot of work, but it's uh, it's very rewarding. Amazing. Well, if anybody is in cybersecurity or looking to get into cybersecurity, they'll have to um, check out your your community, Maria. Definitely. Awesome. Well, any final words or thoughts that you want to share um, with everybody listening? before we close it out for the day. Oh gosh, uh, why don't we end it with something controversial? <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, my advice to startup founders uh, as you're you know, kicking off your, your dream and uh, you know, bringing your baby to life, make sure that your marketing leadership comes from marketing ops background. <laughs> You'll thank me later. <laughs> Amen, mic drop. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, Maria, thank you so, so much for spending some time with us today. Congratulations again on the on the new role and, and growing your team. Thank you. Hoping to hear good news um, on the marketing ops hire for your, your squad. Um, and we'll, like I mentioned, recap in our, our show notes and, and get them out to everyone who um, registered and, and attended. And, and thank you again for sharing the template. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for being with us today. Take care and and we'll see you next week on Marketing Ops Confessions.